Welcome to the Faith Life Fellowship Podcast with Dr. Scott Forrest. In today's message, Dr. Forrest presents his teaching, The Power of Faith-Filled Words. All right, this morning I want to talk to you about something called the power of faith-filled words. Amen? The power of faith-filled words. There are three powerful examples in Scripture that I'd like to share with you this morning concerning the power of faith-filled words. And there's quite a bit of Scripture, but remember at times like this, just treat it as story time with Dr. Scott. Amen. It's all right to read the Bible in church. Anyway, when we get done, I think you'll have a greater appreciation and a deeper revelation of the power that is released when faith-filled words are spoken by born-again, spirit-filled believers. Having said that, none of the examples I'm going to use involve born-again, spirit-filled believers. They're all from the Old Testament. The first one involves the patriarch Isaac. The second one involves the pagan king Darius. And the last one involves the prophet Jeremiah. So hang with me, though, and I think you'll see that there's a lot to be learned from these ancient men that we born-again, spirit-filled believers can apply to our everyday lives. We're going to start with the fascinating story of the blessing that the patriarch Isaac spoke over his son Jacob. If you would, turn in your devices or in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 27 verse 1 through 4. Genesis 27, 1 through 4. I'll be using mainly the King James this morning. A few exceptions. Apologies to the younger folks who like other translations. Normally, you know, I do use them, but today we're going to use a lot of King James. Genesis 27, 1 through 4. And it came to pass that when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, He called Esau his eldest son and said unto him, My son. And he said unto him, Behold, here am I. And he said, Behold now, I am old. I know not the day of my death. Now therefore take, I pray thee, thy weapons, thy quiver and thy bow, and go out to the field and take me some venison, deer meat, for those of you that don't know, and make me savory meat such as I love and bring it to me, that I may eat, that my soul may bless thee before I die. You know, most of us know this story. Isaac was old. He couldn't see very well. And he knew that his time on planet earth was about to come to an end. So he tells Esau, his oldest and favorite son, to go hunting and bring him venison so he can eat it and then bless him before he dies. Remember, the oldest son was entitled to the birthright and to the first and best blessing. And at that time, Jacob had already swindled Esau out of his birthright over some bread and some bean soup. So Rebekah, his mother, overhears Isaac as he instructs Esau to hunt and bring in some venison. She knows that Isaac is ready to pronounce the firstborn blessing on Esau, but she wants the blessing to be upon Jacob, her favorite son. So she hatches an elaborate plot to deceive Isaac by killing a couple of kid goats and making the meat so it tasted like deer meat. I don't know how you pull that off, 
but evidently there's a way to do it. And putting the skin of the goat on Jacob's hands and neck so that he smelled and felt like his brother Esau, who was evidently smelly and hairy. She tells Jacob to take the goat's meat she's prepared and pretend to be Esau back from the hunt. You know, Isaac is suspicious at first, but Jacob is successful in deceiving his father and gives him the goat's meat and wine to drink. I think he probably gave him a little extra wine so he wouldn't be able to tell that it wasn't deer meat. That's just my interpretation. Genesis 27, skip on down to verse 26. Genesis 27, 26, and his father Isaac said unto him, come near now and kiss me, my son. Now remember, this is Jacob, the poser. And he came near and kissed him, and he smelled the smell of his raiment, and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field which the Lord hath blessed. I don't know if that's a compliment, you know. Son, I love the way you smell like a freshly mowed lawn. How many would interpret that as a compliment? I don't know. Verse 28, Therefore God give thee of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of corn and wine. Let people serve thee, and nations bow down to thee. Be Lord over thy brethren, and let thy mother's sons bow down to thee. Cursed be every one that curseth thee, and blessed be he that blesseth thee. And it came to pass, as soon as Isaac had made an end of blessing Jacob, and Jacob was yet scarce gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau his brother came in from his hunting. And he also had made savory meat and brought it unto his father and said unto his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's venison that my soul may bless me. So after the blessing was spoken over Jacob, the poser, and he had just left the father's tent, Esau comes in and he's bringing the real deal. He's bringing real deer meat. Verse 32, And Isaac, his father, said unto him, who art thou? And he said, I am thy son, thy firstborn Esau. At that very moment, Isaac knew he had been deceived. So what was his reaction? Now, wait a minute, Jacob. Get back in here. I take back everything I said. How dare you try to deceive me like that? Esau, come over here. Let's do this right. You're the firstborn. I'm going to say the firstborn blessing again over you. We're going to redo this whole thing. No, that was not his reaction at all. And his reaction is very, very telling. You know, the Hebrew patriarchs took it seriously when they pronounced a blessing. Verse 33. And Isaac trembled very exceedingly. I'll say that again. And Isaac trembled very exceedingly. We'll get back to that. And said, Who? Where is he that hath taken venison and brought it me? And I have eaten of all before thou camest and have blessed him. Yea, and he shall be blessed. And when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with a great and exceeding bitter cry and said unto his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. And he said, Thy brother came with subtlety and hath taken away thy blessing. 
And he said, is he not rightly named Jacob, which means grabber or supplanter? For he hath supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And he said, hast thou not reserved a blessing for me? Later on, we find out that he did have a blessing for Esau, but it was far inferior to the firstborn blessing that Jacob received. And Isaac answered and said unto Esau, Behold, I have made him thy Lord, and all his brethren have I given to him for servants, and with corn and wine have I sustained him, and what shall I do now unto thee, my son? In other words, I don't have much left for you, son. Now, Isaac was one of the patriarchs of the Hebrew people. Today, we would call them founding fathers. You know, they were not only fathers of the faith, but they were fathers of the nation of Israel in its infancy. Their blessings carried both legal and spiritual authority. They were more than mere words. They were prophetic utterances spoken over the one that was being blessed. So what was it that caused the patriarch Isaac to tremble exceedingly? Hear me out. It was the knowledge that he had spoken the blessing over the wrong son, and it could not be changed, it could not be modified, it could not be altered, and it could not be reversed. It was going to come to pass, and there was nothing he or Esau could do about it. That's why he trembled exceedingly. Because when Isaac put his hands on Jacob and spoke the firstborn blessing over him instead of Esau, he did it by faith. And it forever changed the course of history for the nation of Israel. Hebrews 11.20. Hebrews 11.20 says, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. He did it by faith. Even though he spoke it over the wrong person, he did it by faith, and there was no taking it back. So what's the biggest takeaway from this amazing story? I'll tell you what I think. Despite the negative undertones contained in the story, the deception and the lies, I think it's safe to say that you should never underestimate the power of faith-filled words spoken from the heart and mouth of a believer. And you don't have to be a patriarch. You don't have to be a father in the faith. You don't have to be a pastor or a preacher to get the most out of faith-filled words. All you have to be is a believer. King David said in Psalm 116.10, I believed, therefore I have spoken. What is the natural consequence of believing? Sooner or later, it'll come out of your mouth. And the Apostle Paul quotes David in 2 Corinthians 4.13 and says basically the same thing. As it is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. You know, the book of Deuteronomy is a pretty cool book. Most people shy away from it. But in that book, Moses hashes and rehashes the Word of God to the children of Israel over and over and over again because he wants them to be prepared when they cross the Jordan and go to conquer the promised land. He gives them spiritual instruction. 
Deuteronomy 30, verse 19 is one of those moments. He said, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. Proverbs 18, 21. We've all heard this. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Listen, our words have power for good or for bad. We've been given the power of life and death. We've been given the ability to bless or curse. With all that in mind, we might as well learn to speak faith-filled words and bless what needs to be blessed and curse what needs to be cursed. Amen. A lot of things going on in this nation right now that need to be cursed. Trafficking in dead baby parts with taxpayer dollars is one of them. I curse that activity in the name of Jesus. I say that house will fall in the name of Jesus. Those who shed innocent blood will not prevail in Jesus' name. Sorry, I just get angry every once in a while. I have to let it out. All right, let's talk about Daniel and the lion's den. We've all heard the story, but there's some things in here you probably haven't seen before. Daniel chapter 6, verse 1 through 5. Daniel chapter 6, verse 1 through 5. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom. Now, Darius is a Persian king overseeing the children of Israel that were in captivity in Babylon, and Daniel is the prophet in exile. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom. And over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first, that the princes might give accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom. Listen to this. But they could find none occasion nor fault. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. How'd you like to have people say that about you? That's a huge statement about the character of Daniel. Then said these men, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these evil counselors were seething with jealousy over the favor that Daniel had with the king. They knew that if the king's plans were executed, they were going to be working for Daniel, a Jew. So they conspired together and devised a plan to trick King Darius into signing a decree that anyone who offered a petition or a prayer to anybody else but the king over a 30-day period would be thrown into the lion's den. Daniel chapter 6, let's go on down to verse 8. 
Now, O king, establish the decree. This is the evil guys talking to the king. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. I want you to pay real close attention to that. It was part of the culture of their kingdom that when the king made a decree, even he couldn't reverse it. Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem. He kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. I like that. Daniel knew he was going to be watched. So I like to think that he went into his apartment He opened the windows a little bit wider than he normally did. He opened the curtains a little bit wider than he normally did. When he got on his knees and he prayed, he prayed louder than he normally did because he wanted them to hear every word. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And these eyewitnesses reported it to the king. So go on down to verse 14. Then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with Daniel. No, that's not what it says. Then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. He knew these evil men had painted him into a corner and he couldn't quite figure out what he was going to do about it. Verse 15, then these men assembled unto the king and said unto the king, Know, O king, that the law of the Medes and Persians is that no decree nor statute which the king establishes may be changed. They're reminding him. Then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, listen to this, this is a pagan king who had gotten to know Daniel and saw that there was something different about him. And it was having an effect on him. He said, thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. I think that's astounding. I think that's amazing. And a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and passed the night fasting. Neither were instruments of music brought before him, and his sleep went from him. So the king didn't eat anything that night, and he lost sleep because he's worried about his friend Daniel. Then the king arose early in the morning and went in haste unto the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God, whom thou servest continually, able to deliver thee from the lions? Then said Daniel unto the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and hath shut the lions' mouths, that they may not hurt me. For as much as before him innocency was found in me, and also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. In other words, he's saying, I've done nothing wrong, king, and I meant no insult to you, but I have to pray to my God. Then was the king exceedingly glad for him 
and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no manner of hurt was found upon him because he believed in his God. Amen. Listen, King Darius, as I said before, had essentially allowed himself to be painted into a corner. He loved Daniel, considered him to be a great friend, but because of the law of the Medes and Persians that said no decree spoken by the king could be reversed, he couldn't do anything to save his friend. Changing his mind was not an option either because you got to know he surely thought about it. But had he done so, it would have been interpreted as a sign of weakness. And it would have cost him his kingdom and probably his life. The only thing that he could do was commit the life of Daniel unto the God that he served. And that's exactly what he did. Now, he still spent a sleepless night thinking about Daniel. And as the scripture makes clear, not very happy with himself for allowing his ministers to trick him into throwing Daniel into the lion's den. But I want you to, I want to leave you with a very important detail of this story that most people miss. Darius was the last one to speak to Daniel before they rolled that stone over the lion's den. He spoke the last words that Daniel heard from anybody before the stone was rolled over the mouth of the cave and there was no way to escape. And the king said, Your God, whom you serve continually, He will deliver you. I submit to you that that decree, if you will, was just as binding as the one that he had spoken that put Daniel into the lion's den in the first place. He couldn't figure out how to get Daniel out, so he made another decree. Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Amen. You know, after all, he was a king. He knew how to make decrees. It was part of his business. Amen. And that business of making declarations and decrees goes all the way back to the oldest book in the Bible, Job. So we know it was a very ancient practice, Job 22, 28. Thou shalt also decree a thing, and it shall be established unto thee, and the light shall shine upon your ways. You know, the Amplified says, you shall decree a thing, and it shall be established unto you. And the light of God's favor will shine on your way. So this is not just a decree that anybody can make. This has to be a decree that lines up with the will and the word of God. And God's light will shine on it. Amen. And it wouldn't be the last time King Darius made a decree that was favorable to the people of Israel. Listen to this. When Ezra and his men were released from captivity in Babylon to go and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Listen to this. King Darius personally made a decree that any kings or people that interfered with them as they rebuilt the temple would be swiftly destroyed. You can't tell me that that episode with the lion's den didn't make a huge impression on King Darius. So let me sum these first two examples up by saying this. If a word of a patriarch and the word of a pagan king was revered and caused men to tremble and was considered to be unalterable, unchangeable, and irreversible. 
how much more should faith-filled words from the heart and mouth of born-again, spirit-filled believers be considered unalterable, unchangeable, and irreversible? Are you with me? This is especially true when you add God's words to the word that you speak. Amen. Speaking them over your life, over your family, over your nation, and over your world. Amen. Listen to what King David says about the word of the Lord. Psalm 119, verse 89, New King James. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. God has no doubts about the words that he spoke. Once they left his mouth, it was settled with him. You know, back in the 70s, when I was a young teenager and I got saved and filled with the Spirit, there was a saying that went around. It went something like this. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. We thought that was so cool until I figured out it was wrong. You might settle it with you, but it's already settled with God. I think what we should say is God said it. That settles it. And if I'm smart, I'll believe it. Not only is God's word settled in heaven, it upholds the heavens themselves. Hebrews 1.3 in the Amplified Classic says this, says the Son of God, pre-incarnate, before He took on flesh, the Son of God is upholding and maintaining and guiding and propelling the universe by His mighty word of power. Amen. The galaxies are held together and the universe is being propelled outwards by faith-filled words that were spoken by the Son of God at the moment of creation. It's still happening. You know, the universe is expanding and scientists don't really know why. They can't see enough energy in the cosmos to cause it to happen. So they come up with things like dark energy to try and explain it. Or dark matter to explain why these huge galaxies that are spinning at incredible speeds, why the stars at the edges don't fling out into the open space. They don't, they don't know why that doesn't happen. There's a scripture says that by Him, that is Jesus, the Creator, all things consist. All things are held together. We understand, you know, dark energy is cool to think about, but we don't have to believe in dark energy to know that God is pushing the boundaries of the galaxies and the cosmos outwards at incredible, almost light speed. All right, that was a little science moment. There'll be more coming here. Just bear with me. You know, if the word of the Lord spoken by the pre-incarnate Christ were ever to fail, the entire universe would collapse immediately. The universe as we know it would cease to exist. With all that in mind, Consider my last example, if you want a powerful picture of the unshakable, unchangeable, and irreversible nature of the Word of God. I call it the challenge of Jeremiah. I remember years ago, reading through the book of Jeremiah, I came across this passage, and I just sat straight up in my chair, and I said, Lord, oh my gosh, does that really mean what I just read because of what I know about science? He said, yes. I want you to teach on it. Jeremiah 33, 19 through 21. Jeremiah 33, verse 19 through 21. Give you a little background. If you read through the book of Jeremiah, most of it is pretty depressing. It, it is. And because it's chapter after chapter after chapter 
of all the death and destruction that Jeremiah prophesies over Israel because of their sin and idolatry. It's not until you get later into the book that anything good is prophesied by Jeremiah. And this was not lost on the people of God. They were like, by the time he got finished preaching death and destruction and saying things like that, then he comes over and says, but one day God is going to restore Israel to all its glory. They were having trouble believing that, that they could recover from this kind of devastation. So through the prophet Jeremiah, God issues a challenge to the people of Israel concerning the integrity of his word. Amen. Jeremiah 33, 19 through 21. And the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, If you can break my covenant of the day and my covenant of the night, and that there should not be a day and night in their season, then may also my covenant be broken with David my servant, that he should not have a son to reign upon his throne, and with the Levites, the priests, my ministers. Now, the covenant of the day and night that he references is in Genesis chapter 8, verse 22. It says this, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. You know, you can bank on it. It's a promise that God made. So he's saying, if you can break that promise that I made to you and the universe, then maybe I'll think about reneging on one of the things that I prophesied over my people. There are two ways I know of that would cause the covenant of day and night as we know it to cease. Number one, hang with me. Don't let this go over your head. Listen, I've studied this for years. Number one, you could slow the rotation of the earth around its axis. The earth rotates at the equator at 1,038 miles per hour. In order to ensure that only one side of the earth faced the sun like the moon does the earth, you would have to slow that rotation down to about three miles an hour. Now, the earth weighs 1.3 times 10 to the 25th pounds, or it has a mass of 13 trillion trillion pounds. There's no machine, no power, no method, no process, no technology known to man that could ever hope to do such a thing to something as massive as the earth. What are you going to do? Like, er, 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 let's put some brakes out here in space and slow it down a little bit. There's just no way. Just no way. Number two, the other alternative is even more daunting. You would essentially have to put the sun in orbit around the earth at a speed that would match the rotational speed of the earth. But there are a few minor problems with that. The sun is already moving around the center of the Milky Way galaxy at 500,000 miles per hour. And the earth is revolving around the sun at 67,000 miles per hour. So somebody please tell me how mankind with our current technology or any technology you could ever imagine being invented could ever hope to do such a thing. And that's the point, really. 
I believe God put forth the challenge exactly that way so that men could grasp the absolutely fundamental nature of God's faithfulness to his word. Amen. It's especially poignant for this generation because we know what this means. We have the technology to measure the mass of the sun and the mass of the earth and the speed of rotation of the earth and the the speed of rotation of a galaxy. We have those methods, so we know how amazingly impossible this task would be. So in effect, he was saying to the people of God through the prophet Jeremiah that if somehow they could nullify the covenant of day and night that he established, then maybe, God said, I'll think about reneging one of my promises to King David and to the people of God. In other words, it just ain't going to happen. God's going to be faithful to his word. We sang it this morning. He's faithful. He's faithful. Hallelujah. That's, that's how sure a foundation the word of God is, especially when it is spoken, when it echoes what God's word says in declarations and decrees by born-again, spirit-filled believers. Amen. All right, going to wrap it up. We need to change our mindset when it comes to the power of faith-filled words. Our whole paradigm needs to shift in a major way. You know, when I first heard the word paradigm, I thought, I got four nickels. All right, crash and burn. Anyway, our whole paradigm needs to shift in a major way. Listen, we need to think like Isaac who shook and trembled at the power and certainty of his spoken blessing. We need to think like King Darius, who knew that his decree could not be changed once it left his mouth. And as Jeremiah made clear, when we speak his word, we need to know that it is the same unalterable, unchangeable, and irreversible word that governs the motions of the planets and the stars the force that upholds the very foundations of the universe. When we speak the word, we need to speak it with boldness, authority, and with the knowledge that our words can be containers of life or death. We can speak blessing or cursing. We need to wake up to this, folks. If we as the people of God can ever get a handle on the unshakable integrity of God's word and the importance of that word coming out of our mouths with faith and power, we will turn this planet upside down for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. We hope you enjoyed Dr. Forrest's message, The Power of Faith-Filled Words. If you're in the Wilmington area and are looking for a place to worship, come join us on Sunday at 10 a.m. for coffee and fellowship and 10.30 for worship and service. If you would like to learn more about us and hear more of Dr. Forrest's teachings, visit our website at gofaithlife.com. Also, visit and like our Facebook page at Faith Life Wilmington.